All right. This will be part two of our discussion with Tom Evans. We pick up where we left off in part one, talking about environmental pathology and how it impacts rigging considerations. And I think that that environmental pathology, a lot of people kind of sweep to the side because we, we can't control that. You've actually got to be good. You've got to think about it. Well, I mean, this is this is um, a pet peeve of mine because I, I, I've <laughs> I've taught a number of different people or not people, I should say different types of um, riggers. And it, what's fascinating is when you talk to, say, a fire service um, person, they have very rigid belief systems about, um, say, things like anchors that are unrealistic if you, you use them in a canyon, you know, or people who uh, kind of ignore some of the safety factor things that are a big deal for the fire service because they're dealing with like, you know, things that are burning, you know. So what I what I think is um, fascinating is that there's a lot of rigging advice out there that that really doesn't consider the environment. And I wish we would do that more frequently where we'd say, okay, this technique works really, really well in like a waterfall. Okay, I don't expect the fire service to ever consider this as a useful technique. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. But we, we haven't kind of gotten there as a as a science yet where we we tend to teach uh, rigging and rescue as like this is how to do it. This is the way or this is a way out of a few instead of saying, hey, look, you know, this is a way that works really good for, I don't know, whitewater rescue versus canyon rescue versus, you know, cave or backcountry rescue, whatever. You'll pick your poison. So, yeah, I, I do think we've kind of developed into um, like rigging clicks. You right. know, you, you talk to people who are mostly fire, who are mostly cave, who are mostly canyon. And I think that there would be a lot more power in our rigging if we got together and talked more frequently. Because I know when, when I uh, spent time with you um, on the East Coast, like, I, I learned some things that the users that you interact with on a more frequent basis are thinking and are doing that I had never even considered. Uh, and I had some tricks that I could help them with, and they had some tricks that could help me that I was like, oh, yeah, I can actually apply that underground. So I, I think that there's a, definitely room for us to start talking more as, a, as kind of a rigging community um, to kind of learn techniques. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and I think you and I talked about there's that uh, paper written back in like 1968, and then you know, it's the, the games climbers play, and they talk about how there's all these different from bouldering to trad to sport to alpinism to expedition and none of these groups actually communicate with each other when in reality i think collectively you're able to gain and just the same thing you know when you're out here i was picking up on some things especially with like ascending and all which you know in caving you have some freaking significant ascending uh requirements sometimes that were phenomenal that like i never i never really even considered that just because you know in an urban environment or or just off a, a waterfall or off a cliff you know this is this works good enough yet by adding a couple of those techniques that you were doing just makes it way, way easier. But yeah, I don't think there's a lot of communication that kind of permeates in that. And I guess at Eiders, you kind of have a little bit of that going with some of the different disciplines that are there, which which collectively makes it fairly interesting. Real quick, I was going to ask you, since we, we kind of brought it up too, is you did a, uh, I, I believe you did a poster at Eiders this year. Uh, and this is kind of one of the big topics that are out there too. Obviously, in what what I typically do and where we instruct, it's mainly just single rope systems, um, single rope techniques on everything. But when that, that's obviously not the norm and, uh, all the time. So when we're dealing with two two rope systems, whether it's a main and a belay versus a two tension rope system, so talk a little bit about the poster that you did on that uh, and some of the research that you've done also with uh, you know. And I think the two tension also called a mirrored system, which we see a lot of people kind of going to. And so it's kind of one of like almost East Coast West Coast gang warfare, man. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, between, little, yeah. between those two, between the two groups, but uh, what have you kind of found taking kind of an unbiased look at it? Well, first to, to kind of explain the difference, 
what we've been using the past, you know, 15, 20, 30 years has been a main line that carries all the load for a raise and a lower and then a separate untensioned belay line that will catch the load if the main line fails. And there's some really cool things about that. You know, you're able to control the, the load exclusively with one line. So you get a lot of information about what's going on, going on over the edge. Um, but if that main line does fail, there's this really big shock load that occurs, you know, because the, the belay line um, has to first catch the load and then has to stretch. So there's, there's kind of a two-phase catch. You know, first there's a free fall, then a catch and then a stretch. Kirk Mothner, and actually this is something that has been brought up for the for many decades. That people said, well, you know, maybe we ought to be doing two tension stuff, um, where you have two loaded lines that are are holding the load both for a raise or for a lower. Um, and you can engineer this a variety of different ways. And and Kirk Mothner a few years ago uh, showed a video of I think three drop tests where he showed that the um, two tension system did better handling breakage on the edge if there was a big failure. And what's happened in the past few years is that there's been a bunch of testing here in the U.S. and abroad. Um, there's a bunch from Canada and a, a bunch from um, um, South Africa as well that has shown has kind of highlighted the differences between these two systems. And you there, there are some things that are kind of rigging lore related to to main and belay systems as as well as two tension systems. And then you have the stuff that we have data on. And the stuff that we have data on is is pretty conclusive. One in a in a failure of a rope. The forces um, required to catch a load are much lower on the load as well as on the anchors in a two-tension system. So no matter how you hack it, that two-tension system is going to catch the load um, in a shorter distance with lower forces on the anchors and um, on the load. Now, as far as how well they do with edge issues, um, they behave more or less identically to uh, main and belay systems if you pad the edge enough. Right. So as long as you're being responsible about your edge protection, the two types of systems are more or less the same. Um, if you're not being responsible about your edge protection, then your two tension system is probably a little bit better um, if you drop the ropes um, loaded onto that edge. Now, with that said, um, and so a lot of people are, are really pushing for two tension systems kind of sweep through the rescue community and we need to adopt them. And I do, for the most part, agree with them. I think that the data is unequivocal. These two tension systems are much safer. And I've done a bunch of testing with a two-person load as well as a one-person load. And, you know, it, it is the, – the results are totally obvious. You know, you, you do drop tests with a main and belay system and there's a – you know, it's a dramatic drop test. And, you know, the load drops and there's all sorts of big peak loads. Um, and then with the main – or with a two tension system, it's kind of a boring drop and there's kind of a little pendulum swing and it's not a big deal. Here's the deal. We should not be just – jumping on the bandwagon of two tension systems and ignoring that main and belay systems have a function. They're really good for certain things. For example, you really can't do a um, a tower rescue without an untensioned belay. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to run someone up that tower with an untensioned belay. You know, that's the way it goes. So I would encourage people to really consider, seriously consider moving to two tension systems. But in the back of your mind, keep in mind that, you know, unloaded belays are still quite useful for some functions. I guess, does that answer the question? Yeah, which brings me to to another point of one of the big questions that hits on me is technically if we're doing a mirrored system or two tension uh, system, kind of have that identical setup on both. And so that load is being shared by these two systems. Now, obviously, you've got variables in there where, you know, you're working one, I'm working the other. We have them separated, and you and I have got to be on the same page, right, whether we're lowering or we're hauling or, or whatnot. But with that, because the load is being shared, why why are we still wanting to use really large rope and 
does that make sense? So if we're using the same stuff we're using on a oh, main, yeah. so why don't why what's the hesitant? What, what's the idea behind that? I just don't understand because now when I'm sharing it. Why do I need to now have you know two twelve point fives if that was my world? Or do you know could can I theoretically yeah get away with going lighter since it's sharing it? It's almost oh, like yeah. it's almost I mean, like you're, in climbing, right? In climbing, I'm, I, I'm, I do dual and uh, twin ropes, yeah, right? Yeah. And uh, and I can go down to a seven two, no problem. Uh, so what's what's the what's the hesitancy there? Um, I honestly think it's it's a hesitancy of we haven't done it that way before, because I, I agree with you. Like I am happy moving to the you know eight millimeter caving rope and and doing single technique in fact mm-hmm. um, but if you're going to do a two tension system do a two tension system with um with eight millimeter rope which is kind of like the smallest that i'd, I'd be reasonably comfortable using in a cave environment yeah. um above ground i'd use smaller happily so yeah i agree with you i don't think that um you need two 12.5 millimeter ropes i think that's overkill the likes of which is just absurd <laughs> i think that's just simply making manufacturers quite wealthy you know but I do think that just switching to a two tension system, that battle right there, um, it's going to take a decade, and then I think it'll be another decade before we're able to say, oh, hey, maybe you should consider using a ten millimeter rope or a, maybe even a nine. You know what I mean? I should probably add to this that you know Kirk Moffner has frequently said, hey, you know, you can use a six millimeter rope for a high line as long as you've got uh, load limiting built into the system. Right. You know, if you know what you're doing, you can absolutely do that safely. And I think that part of the, you know, 12.5 millimeter rope philosophy is, you know, we really don't know what we're doing because we're not practicing this every single day. So let's just add this enormous rope. So if we make a mistake, we're still, we'll st- we are still covered. So, I mean, this goes back to the, the discussion that you and I have had a couple of times, you know, is it better to um, buy gear that kind of deals with your inadequacies or is it better to train better? Right. And I think, yeah, no, I, I agree. We, we talked about this last night too, is, is we've kind of turned into this puppy mill of like, these are the rules, follow them, and you shouldn't maybe kill yourself or the patient. And in reality, those yeah. rules, there's not enough rules to cover every instance that you're going to hit in, in real life rescue, especially in, in an underground type of area. But I, I had this, not off topic, I'll try and loop it around as best as I can with Adderall here. There's a doc out on the West Coast that I'm friends with who's an HRO guy, and, and he actually did not have protocols for his medics. The reason is, is protocols kind of create these rules, and in his view, real life works between the rules, right? There's always these gray areas um, that they don't yeah. have a protocol for. And so he basically had his paramedics treat the pathophysiology of the patient and you wouldn't go wrong and taking that into rescue is i think at some level there should be some personal accountability to where it's it's not the guy by the book type of thing you've got to understand some physics you've got to understand how to manipulate fr- friction you know that's that's pretty much a core competency when you're on ropes right i, I need yes. friction if i'm going down a rope i need friction if i'm lowering you down a rope i need to alleviate friction if i'm hauling and just having a simple understanding of material science like you brought up right how polyester works with with nylon and how an aramid works with not, uh, polyester etc by understanding these components it, it then allows you to to just rig 
based on mm -hmm. what you're given instead of a routed technique that there's pictures of step by step in a book, let's say. And, and I think that's it is it goes into what you're saying is do we buy equipment that we can hopefully keep people brain dead and don't have to train them that hard? Or can we give you a true capability to where, you know, we were talking about, you know, what we can do with two carabiners versus an MPD. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's, there's, there's, there's a difference in there, but I just like with patient care, if we treat the pathophysiology versus trying to figure out what protocol they funder, fall under and we understand the properties of some physics and a little bit of geometry or trig when we're talking about high lines and, and a little bit of material science for everything, then I think we're going to be way better well-rounded. You know, Murphy will always show up on, on a scene, on a rescue, <laughs> and screw you over. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, it, that's true. I'm in a, a unique situation right now, and, and I'm thinking about this a lot because I, I'm just just starting to join this um, SAR team right now uh, near where I live, and, and they have uh, never really done high angle or technical rescue, and they're they're getting their their program started. They said, hey, you know, would you would you put in your two cents as to what the the personal requirements or or skills each person should have to have to to be part of this technical rescue team? And I started making a list, and then I realized, you know. The things that I need everyone, like everyone to be totally rock solid on are not all the same things that I need for, you know, a few people who are like the master riggers. You know what I mean? And I've come to come to this conclusion, like in many cases, if I show up to a, a rescue scene, I almost want to do all the rigging myself because I can do it faster without having anyone else mucking around with it, mm -hmm. you know? And it's kind of like if if I, I know you're a competent rigger and I could probably say, hey, you know, build me X, Y, and Z on that anchor and you do it happily and then I could build all sorts of craziness and you'd probably glance over at me and be like, oh, I see what he's doing there. Okay. Uh, and move on. But I can't do that with the people on my team, you know? Right. Because they're they're not there yet. And I don't mean that as, a, as an insult. It's just, you know, we all start somewhere and they're not they're not there. And so when, when we were asked uh, – I looked at their gear and they said, you know, um, what do you think about this? And I'm looking at the gear and thinking, well, I, I can perform a rescue with all of this gear. You know, I, I don't know what you want me to say other than, all, yes, it's safe and it will work. But they, they did have the attitude of what gear do we need to buy versus what skills do we need to learn. Right. And and that that to me really showed me um, like what they want is they want to be told, here's how to build the system versus, you know, here's how to think. And once you know how to think, you can improvise in a, in a scenario. And so I, I agree with you. I think that we should be pushing toward an educational system in rescue where we are thinking about critical thinking and, you know, maybe training fewer rescuers, in fact, but training them at a higher uh, competency level, um, I think would be more effective. Right. No, I, I agree. And I think it has. It's, a lot of things have turned into this kind of puppy mill and, you know, mm -hmm. just, just replicate it. We're, you know, working with a, a USAR team few months back it was it was kind of incredible and the state where we were mandated that you had to take your rope one course from the state fire college it was amazing the lack of knowledge they impart on their students it, it mm -hmm. was it was it, to the point where even on on not passing guys like well i've actually never done it they will set up a system they'll pick two people out They'll tell them what to do, and then we move to the next station. And you're like, "Oh my uh, god, that's... oh my god, that's incredible! That is incredible!" Uh. And you know, when you think about it, you know, it, it's a not pass, but in reality, it's a load transfer, which you use for a bunch yeah. of things. And you know, in reality, a load transfer, in my opinion, is like you get out of jail free card. If you've, you know, I hate to yes. say the word mastered, but if you've got a strong grasp on how to t execute a load transfer in multiple ways, you can not only unscrew other people's systems up 
but you can unscrew your own stuff up when when you know you're yes. working at three o'clock in the morning and it's raining and you're like, well, I don't even know what the fuck I just did. But it's kind of that thing, and to see that they just kind of glance over it very quickly was uh, was somewhat nauseating uh, to me. Before we head this up, when you talk about evidence based, and when I say evidence based to people that are listening, you are talking using the term in a in a pure form compared to what some of the military doctrine uh, has used evidence based stuff for, where it's just laboratory type of stuff with recommending equipment. But when you talk evidence-based and data-driven rigging, where do you see, what, what have you seen as far as changes from what you've presented and how people are bringing that in to what the, the guys down the road that work on a volunteer mountain rescue system, how can they turn around and start implementing their own research, their own data-driven guidelines for how they, how they operate without going and getting a, a PhD? And- oh, well, I think the there, there are kind of two aspects to this. One is there's a ton of research that's already out there. And I would highly encourage people to just read it. Academically, I come from like paleontology, like all these people who study old dead things, right? And, and I will happily mock them till the cows come home. Um, <laughs> but the, the thing, the reason why I, I say that is that, you know, there, there's academic um, science, what we see, you know, coming out of universities and whatnot. And then there's just what is science as a whole. You know, people like um, Aristotle and uh, those individuals, Newton, who who did amazing science but didn't have a lot of technology nor a whole lot of education, I might add. And where I'm driving with this is that you don't have to have a PhD. You don't have to have a master's or a bachelor's. Hell, you can have any education level and still do good science. I would say kind of two things to, I guess, collect my thoughts. One, read the research of others, um, and you'll see that on our nonprofit webpage, I spent just way too much time finding research that other people have done and kind of organizing it so that you can find it really easily. Uh, so you can just say, I'm, I don't know, I'm interested in snow anchors, and then you click on the snow anchors tab, and then you can find all the stuff that I've found on snow and ice anchors. Um, so I would encourage people to read those. You know, some incredibly smart human beings have have done the uh, those research those research projects, and some of them are you know um, amazing scientists. Like some of them are you know national labs, some of them are uh, at NASA, some of them are also just people who are intelligent human beings who've just said, you know what, I'm going to do some cool work. So yes, read read other research. And the second thing is is you intuitively know how to uh, create your own data. A lot of people will kind of denigrate this the notion of like backyard testing. The thing is, that's what most of science was for hundreds of years, was, quote, unquote, backyard testing. You know, what you're doing is something called a pilot experiment or uh, an empirical study. Uh, if you go and break, like, five or six anchors in your backyard with a winch, well, it's still science. You know, it's it's not academic science in the sense of I'm going to publish it in a peer-reviewed journal, but who cares? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you've answered the question sufficiently uh, to rig differently. You know, so how is that not science? It's it's amazingly quality science. So I would argue that if you decide you want to find out, say, I don't know, how strong a, a knot is, go ahead and break a bunch. Call up Blue Water or PMI or CMC or Sterling or any one of the manu- manufacturers and just give them a call and say, hey, I'd like to do some testing. Um, you know, can you send me some rope or webbing or cordage or what, whatever, you know? Uh, if you want to know how strong your system is, why don't you build the system and put in a quick link that you can fail and just – do some drop tests. I'm working with a, a group down in Utah right now who um, who they're doing some drop testing uh, of two tension systems, and I'm doing some drop te- testing as well to give them the kind of laboratory side of things, and they're doing the, the more realistic testing. It's incredibly easy. Just build your system, start running it, and then fail it. Yeah. You know, it, it's but that is science. And as we were talking about yesterday, 
um, you did a research project that, you know, the, the nerdlings at the national labs had never even considered and it wildly changed their view of how a, a particular device worked, you know, um, you were just happening to use a different type of, of research than they're used to. Um, you were using something called empiricism and they were using something called an experiment. Well, obviously there are strengths and weaknesses to each, each type. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you know how to do good, do good science is what I'm saying. So go ahead and do it. And I think with that, I, I think it's, it's on everybody to, to be able to kind of push the limits of what they carry. One, yeah. to evaluate what they carry, but number two, to, I mean, you really need to know the right and left parameters when things go south. And you may have to use something off label or you don't have, you know, what you need. Talking last night, you know, you can spend ungodly amounts, hundreds and hundreds of dollars on an MPD. But holy crap, man, what you can do with like a Zuper Munter man is, on a Lori's yeah. is, is yeah. sick, man. I need two carabiners and a, and a decent anchor and I'm good to go, which is kind of crazy. Last thing is, is what are you doing now? I think uh, you're looking into some knots right now. Uh, that's kind of your project right now is looking at some of the, I know you did a presentation on some of the brake strengths of various knots and showing that, hey, materials make a difference. There's pros and cons on everything, you know, going by strength alone may not be what you want to do because a lot of those numbers are inaccurate that are, that have been out there for decades and decades. But what are you looking at now with, uh, with some of the knots? Yeah. So I've kind of decided that there are kind of three different types of talks that I want to do in the future. And I'm going to try to do them, uh, do one of each every year at a minimum. Um, one, I want to do just review articles where I just take all the data sets I can find and put them in one place so that everyone has access to them in, in one easy you know, form. Uh, and that's what I did this year with the knots. I just took all the knot testing I could find, stuck it in one place, graphed everything so you can look at it and say, oh my gosh, you know, everything is, is very similar. Um, another one is I, I want to do some, some testing myself. What I'm trying to do is I'll do a literature review on like say knots and then I'll, I'll find what the weaknesses are in those studies and then I'll do testing to kind of fill in the holes in, in what we understand. And so this next year I'm going to do a bunch of, of knot testing with really big sample sizes so that we can get a sense of the variability awesome. um, in knots uh, with both new and used rope. Um, and I, I do need to thank Sterling for donating a metric crap ton of rope. Uh, it's a, it really was. I, I asked for about a mile and a half, and they sent me two and a half miles. Damn. Um, so, like, you know, credit where credit's due. Um, I should mention that other manufacturers have offered me rope, and I haven't accepted them yet because um, I don't have space in my apartment. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's I'll, I'll get to them. I, I swear I will. But just <laughs> let me break this stuff first. Um, so I do want to fill in the holes in the, in the knowledge. And then I also want to do talks on techniques. Um, so like this is something that I, I came out uh, and showed your your guys last time was the, the inline traveling hull yep. and how you can use that to ascend a rope or, or haul up a casualty. And your casualty can even, you know, be holding a weapon at the, at the time if they need. You know, they're they're not completely able to defend themselves, but they're not totally out of the loop either. So, you know, I, I think that it's important to do all of those studies. Um, but if we kind of take the long view of what I'm going to do in the future, um, I'm going to do research that's really fundamental, things like knot testing, anchor testing, you know, rope testing. I want to nail down some of like just the basic material properties of the systems that we're um, playing with. Then we can start getting into big, you know, to other issues. I also want to start doing um, some testing on comparing equipment versus knowledge. Um, because I'm quite confident that I can do everything uh, an MPD can do. I can do it with two carabiners. 
what I want to do is is put some numbers on it. Just say, hey, <laughs> you know, this carabiner, it's not as efficient of a pulley, but, you know, it does stop a load in a fraction of the height. Mm-hmm. You know, o- okay, well, that's good to know. So I'm going to do some of the, that testing, you know, locking hitch testing, um, friction hitch testing. Uh, so we have an understanding of like how how much force can you hold with a, or how much load can you hold with a super munter. You know, my bet is it's probably 1,200 pounds. Yeah. You know, well, that's more than I'm ever going to have to hold. <laughs> right. Hopefully. Absolutely. And we're done, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, real quick, they, uh, I'm going to put uh, links to your website and you need to hit up Tom's website because you've got more research, study, data, presentations, audio stuff than uh, that can keep you busy for, for months and months. But it's sarrr.weebly.com, but we'll have a link to that and some of your presentations and uh, need to go check that out. I appreciate your time, Tom. Thanks a lot, man. We'll have to, we'll have to hit this up again when, uh, when we both get enough anger and rage about things that are going on in the <laughs> River Rescue world that we can vent. <laughs> but uh, no, I appreciate your time, and, uh, and we'll get people uh, hitting to your website. And that is a uh, – you have a 5013C. Is that what it is? It's a non-for-profit? Yeah, yeah. yeah we are a 501C3 nonprofit, um, and we do as much rigging research as we can. Um, we try to, to do literature reviews so that um, users can find information faster. We try to do research that – uh, by request. So if you have something that you want us to do, we'll we'll do it. We'll add it to the list. Um, it might take a year to do, but we'll do it. Awesome. And uh, and definitely do that. If you uh, have questions, uh, hit uh, hit Tom up, hit his website up. And if you're a vendor or manufacturer, uh, hit him up with some uh, some stuff to test and to break for, for free, uh, even though you'll be on a list until he gets a large storage <laughs> unit or something. So. <laughs> All right, Tom. I appreciate it, man. And I yeah, appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much. Take care. All right, that concludes this two-part series with Tom Evans. We have a bunch more podcasts in this series that will be getting posted every few days. We'll be talking with Rusty, Brent, Dominic, and we actually have another one with Tom that will be discussing small assisted rescue parties and mission-specific response gear selection based on capabilities. If you need any more information, podcast notes, presentations, and links, go to elementrescue.com and sign up on the email list for notifications.